This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 12, Episode 45. This is Writing Excuses, structuring a series. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm and great. to be continued. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I apparently am not Brandon. I am to be continued. Yeah, I'm Mary. I thought I was Dan. Next week on Writing Excuses, (laughs) I'll be Howard. Okay, (laughs) let's talk about types of series. Um, Because series means a lot of different things. Um, One of them is the Wheel of Time style series, which is kind of the Game of Thrones style series, which is the, this is one long continuous story, same as Lord of the Rings. We are going to break at certain parts which might have climactic moments, but really the next part is going to generally take place very soon after and is going to be a direct continuation of the story. Yeah. And I think those are in in part come from Lord of the Rings, which was originally written as just one giant book. Yeah. And the publisher split it into three and now we... Split yeah, I, books into separate pieces. David Eddings, who was also very, you know, very popular in the post-Tolkien wave, he wrote a trilogy, and then they split them into five because they're like, ah, we want we want five of these. And so, it, in epic fantasy, I feel like we have a long history of just we'll just <laughs> cut it here. Yeah. Now, the one of the other kinds of series is what I call the episodic one, or what Brandon referred to earlier as the continuing adventures of, and this is something like um, Jack Ryan books. Uh, Repairman Jack, that yes, there's kind of a meta thread going on. There is progression overall, but really you're just, oh, here's another great Repairman Jack story and I can read them in whatever order and it's awesome. And one of the differences between the two kinds of series is uh, the kind of protagonist you have. Mm -hmm. In the epic fantasy, you uh, you have characters who are going to change over time and in these uh, these uh, almost pulp serial series, uh, you have heroes that uh, my friend Jim Zub calls the iconic hero, Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Uh, has Dirk lots of Pitt. adventures. Yeah, Dirk Pitt. I'm going to disagree with you because my series, uh, Glamorous Histories, is episodic. You can each read each book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. individually. Uh, you can read them out of sequence. But there is a long character arc. Jane changes over time. So it's not. It's so not it's hard, hard. Yeah, it's not hard and fast. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think I see that in a, a lot of them. Uh, you know, the October Day books also are the same mm-hmm. thing. That each yes. one is is self contained. Um, you're right that there are absolutely ones where we we the the hero resets at the beginning of the book. At you know, at the end of the book for the next book. Um, or if they've had a little bit of character development, that just gets worked into the next book very easily. They say Dirk Pitt was once married, but is no longer blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, you can yeah. read them in any order. So it's fairer to say, then, that what we had defined as a dichotomy is not a dichotomy. There's there's a <laughs> large range of these there's spaces. There's a range. I, I just like to make note of the fact that these iconic heroes, uh, their stories, when you're building these kinds of series, often you're not telling a story about Conan. You're telling a story in which Conan takes heroic actions and other people have misery and joy and triumph and whatever else. No, I really like that you bring this up because when you've talked about it before, either on the podcast or with me, it's really, I like the term iconic hero and it's made me understand things better. I think we may have at one point talked about Mad Max as iconic hero where the the movies are not about him as much as 
you know, he rides into town. People are having these problems. He's along for the ride, and yeah. they change and grow, and then he rides off at the end. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, this iconic hero type mm-hmm. doesn't have to be, you know, this guy with all of the muscles. Because right. Jessica Fletcher is an iconic mm-hmm. hero in this mold. She's, right. you know— the, a lot of the cozy mystery genre is yep. this style of thing. Now, we're missing one type of series that I want to get in there and mention because this is very common in romance stories, um, which is the you introduce a cast and each book is one of their stories sequeling after each other. You also see it in epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like um, an Dragon Rider series Burn. type thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a very interesting way to have every character have an arc, but to also give you more of the familiar that you wanted with a new arc in it each time. Yeah, Sherry Priest did this with her Bone Shaker series, where the the books are all in the same universe, but they are not connected. That is that is the lean I am taking with the uh, the Schlock Mercenary stories, where, yes, I'm following the same company, but I have a different protagonist in each book, yep. I, a different relationship character, a different, you know, statement character. Yeah. I think uh, just as a, a media example of The Wire, um, for mm-hmm. those of you who watch that, each season, uh, if you think of them in novel terms, each season was self-contained. And while there are recurring characters, it's a different story the next season. So I want to turn this toward away from the definitions and toward the actual structuring. Um, if you were going to sit down, and when you have, to structure an entire series, how do you approach that? We'll talk later about what to do if you already have a book and you okay. want to add, but let's just say you want to structure one. Dan. Okay, so I'm going to use two examples here, my partial sequence and the Mirador series, because the, the one is heavily serialized and the other one is episodic. Um, with partials... I knew where I wanted it to end. I knew what I was building toward. It was this grand epic thing where, you know, the human race was at stake and they needed to be saved. And I had all these nations and kingdoms and things. And I knew where I wanted it to end. And so I plotted out this massive arc and then basically cut it into three pieces. Whereas with uh, the Mirador books, the cyberpunk, I knew the world I wanted the books to take place in And I knew that many stories could be told about those characters. And so basically, rather than working out this giant story, I just went world building and character building. And I had this huge Bible worked out and then said, okay, within that framework, here's three stories I can tell. And so the focus in one was on plot and the focus in the other one was on character. You know, one of my favorite pieces of writing in my own work is Brandon's introduction to the Terraport Wars, where he says... Uh, the Terraport Wars, this, you know, second collection of Schlock Mercenary is where Schlock Mercenary finally decides what it wants to be when it grows up. Um, <laughs> because that really was the point where when I first started the strip, I was thinking that I was doing uh, Bloom County meets Buck Rogers in the 24th or 25th century. Um, sorry, too much Looney Tunes. Hmm. Um, uh, where it was going to be episodic with iconic heroes. And then I realized that that's boring. I want these people to change. And as I started changing them, I realized, oh my goodness, this, why haven't I seen more of this in the things that I love to consume? You know, I, that's what I want to make. And it took me about a year and a half to get to that point. Um, and, and then you fell down the epic 
rabbit hole like I have. <laughs> I fell down the epic rabbit hole, but I knew as I was falling that I needed to be shaping these things with satisfactory beginnings, middles, and ends so that I could wrap covers around them and make money. And so the structure, this really is a place where form follows function. The function was create a saleable product. And the form that followed was a storyline that is between six months and 18 months long. So I'm curious about how you do this, Brandon, because I have, like, I'm doing a duology now, which is the first time I've done two books that are paired that, that are, you know, where you cannot read the second one without reading the first one or, or right. stepping in would be awkward. Um, how do you handle it when you've got like 10 books that you're planning? So here's my general process that I've kind of stumbled into as we all stumble into our processes over years. I sit down and I build an outline for a standalone book. Um, and then I start, I add a little bit for what I would do with the rest of the series. But really, I write that first book. Hmm. Uh, this happened with Mistborn. This happened with Steelheart. This happened with, uh, with Stormlight. Write that first book. Get it down. And then when I know, because I do discovery write a lot of characterization issues, once I have a book, I know solidly who these characters are and things like this. And then I build an outline for the rest of the series that is much more in-depth. By in-depth, I'm saying a page or two about each book. Um, so it's not like I have... 50 pages for each book, but having that in place gives me that structure. And then I can go back and revise the first book to match all the planning I've done for the rest of the series. And then I release the first book. Um, and this has worked very well for me to kind of hybridize this. I want to have a plan for a series, but I want to be free in this first book. And it also naturally gives me this standalone with series potential feel mm -hmm. that we really like having at least I do. I, I like when you pick up the first book of a series, whatever it is, you read it and it alone tells you a story and gives you a sense in small of what the entire story might be. And then you, if you like that, you can go on into the series. And if you don't, you at least have gotten an ending. Uh, but I do call this kind of the, the original Star Wars sort of philosophy where movie one is a complete story on its own. Movie two really needs a third story to add to it to, to be a satisfying ending. Um, and that's how you'll read this. You could read Mistborn on its own, satisfying ending. But book two and book three bleed together a lot more. Yeah, I remember finishing Mistborn and thinking, how is he going to do a sequel to this? And reading the second one, I'm like, how is he going to do a sequel to this? Because it get <laughs> Because it hits a satisfying ending. Let's go ahead and stop uh, for our book of the week, and then we'll talk a little bit about that idea. Our book of the week is Dr. McNinja. <laughs> um, Dr. McNinja is one of my favorite webcomics ever. It, it started as a gag about a, for, by a guy who just drew a doctor who was also a ninja and wrote a little gag strip about him. And like many com or webcomic artists in the early days, it spiraled out of control and became something awesome that the, um, the artist slash writer was not intending. What are you defining as the early days just out of curiosity? <laughs> like late 80 or late 90s, um, early 2000s. Yeah. I, I um, had to tell you, but that is for many people a lifetime ago. Yeah. I know this. Right. I think yeah. Dr. Ninja started a little bit after that. Yeah. But yeah. it is what I love about Dr. Ninja it, it, is that it is absurdist with a solid character that treats its absurdism realistically. When people show up riding raptors um, and shooting guns and chasing things, everyone 
in world says, well, this is the sort of thing that happens. We treat this seriously, but the pictures are drawn to just make you laugh. The whole world plays it straight. Yeah. Um, and it is hilarious. And one of the great things about it is, like you say, a lot of those early webcomics spiraled out of control and, you know, fell down the epic rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And that broke most of them. McNinja hung on and actually made it work. He did make it work. Uh, Christopher Hastings is the author of it. Um, and he has um, colorists and people working with him. It's, it's, a, it's a team. But it just finished earlier this year. I Say just it's a finished. Thing. It it finished eight months ago at this point, but <laughs> it's the first time I've had a chance to promo it. It is done. You can read it. It is wonderful, and so I highly recommend p- going and reading Doctor Ninja, beginning to end. Very cool. Um, I had a thought with regard to structuring series that uh, when you are building when you are building something big, it is super helpful to know the end that you are headed for, and. Sometimes it is tempting for us to say, well, there's no way I can describe the story of this series, you know, quickly enough to be in an outline and still have it be a series. How do I do this? And I was reminded of uh, the the uh, narratives that uh, Dan Carlin has built into his discussions of the Punic Wars and World War I. And I realized, oh, you can look at World War I as the epic story of uh, Europe uh, going to war and discovering that technology has changed everything and the war completely changes the political face of, of that continent forever. In two sentences, you could have an epic fantasy the size of World War I that ran for 20 books and didn't even scratch the surface of the number of things that went on there. By the same token, the Punic Wars, Rome going to war with Carthage, and at the end of it, Carthage is wiped completely off the map. And that's a very epic fantasy sort of thing. And it took 50 years. I'm trying to remember how long the Punic Wars were. Um, And during that, we have Hannibal marching elephants across the Alps. These are epic fantasy sorts of things. And so for me, studying history and how a thin narrative thread will often get used to describe something huge is a great way to wrap my brain around putting a narrative thread on the series I want to build as a framework to hang everybody else's stories. And if you n- didn't remember, Dan Carlin is the host of Hardcore History, Hardcore which History. we have promoted on the podcast. I was, you have just pointed, sorry, for those not watching the uh, live feed, Brandon just pointed at me because I scribbled in my notebook, which is usually a sign that I have an idea, uh, and I did but it was an idea about the novel that I'm working oh, on. Oh, wow. Just <laughs> unlocked. Cool. Awesome. So what you, want to, what you want to do now is not make Mary Read reveal that the thing that's yeah, just Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I have a question. Um, usually when we're talking about sequels, we have this weird line to walk where readers are going to want more of the same but different. My question to you is when you're structuring your series, how do you give them the same but different? How much different do you go? Because... I know Mary's gone very different with yeah. her series, for instance. Yeah, so um, so what I've done, for those who, who haven't read them, is uh, with the Glamorous History series, the first book is a straight-up Jane Austen pastiche. And, and classically with a romance, what I would have done for book two is that I would have focused it on Melody, which is Jane's sister, and I would have married her off. And then book three, I would have focused on Miss Dunkirk. Uh, I was not interested in doing that, um, 
what I wanted to do. I liked Jane and I liked, uh, I wanted to keep her as my main character. So I kept her as my same. And my different was that I used a different plot structure for them, for each book. What I'm doing with um, The Calculating Stars and The Faded Sky is, even though it's a duology, um, I have a different, uh, the, the first book is structured with a, a, an event driver. So it's it's very much, you know, the adventure uh, elemental genre. And the second book is very much milieu driven. Um, and even though there's a character thing going on in both of them, I am focusing on a different aspect, a different type uh, a, of um of driving incident. No, I, I do this a lot too. Um, I look at my sequel and say, okay, same characters, their problems and conflicts are escalating for their character arcs, but I want the things they're facing to hit a slightly different note so that you get the people you loved in the setting you love with a story that feels enough different that you're engaged by it. What have you done for John Cleaver? Because John is a really yeah. interesting one for this regard. John is, his series is one that is very heavily serialized. There is a strong continuity because the entire point of the series is how is he going to change from book to book and, and how is he going to grow? And so the the points that are the same are basically him. And then the points that are different are the monster. There's a different monster every time. And so that's how I built those first three books is Here's John, and we know that he is slowly changing and he's slowly turning into this different person, but, you know, we have a different monster every time that focuses on a different, you know, kind of serial killer behavior. The tricky part for me was coming back to it three or four years after the fact and writing the second trilogy. Mm -hmm. Because in that one, John was different. Um, in a lot of ways, what that first trilogy about is John learns how to feel again. And so if I jumped right back into a second trilogy in which John could feel emotions now and react to them, he wouldn't be the same John that you read about in the first trilogy. He would not have that sense of familiarity and people wouldn't like it at all. And which is why I was never <laughs> intending to write a second trilogy. And what eventually made that work for me was the idea that, oh, just because you can feel emotions now doesn't mean that your life is good. Emotions mm -hmm. suck, you know? Yes, he can love now, but that just means we can break his heart over and over again. Yes, so, which you do. <laughs> you're very good at. So, um, you know, finding that, so in that sense, what's similar, again, that that point of, of that anchor point between uh, first and second trilogy is awful things happen to John and you feel bad for him. And so he is still struggling with all of the same questions he struggled with in the first one. He still has those sociopathic tendencies. He still has this, you know, very dark outlook on life. But he is wrestling with a different question and has a different arc in the second one. So building on this, we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to touch on this idea of you have a story. It was successful. You liked it. Now people want to read more and you need to come up with more. How do you do that, Howard? There is a There is a marketing principle here. Uh, the experience that I want people to have with the next installment in the series is I came because I wanted more of these things I love, and I came away having with you having given me something that I didn't even know I wanted, but now I'm in love with. And it's magic when you can make it work. 
um, what you have to ask yourself, and again, it's a it's a marketing thing. It happens across lots of industries. Is what is it that what is it that made about the first book that made people want to pick up the second book? What's the driver? What are the things that they love? How much of that do I have to give them in order for them to be satisfied? What's the new thing that I can add that is going to hook them that still works with that? And that second question is, I, I, that's where all the invention and all the creativity and all the sleepless nights, hmm. that's, for mm. me, that's where they all come from. Now, a, a brilliant example of creators who have asked themselves that question and gotten the wrong answer is in Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. Because going from Raiders of the Lost Ark to Temple of Doom, what you can see there is Lucas and Spielberg saying, what did we love about the first one? And for them, it was all the tropes of the old pulpy serial movies. Let's play with those. That's not what audiences loved about the first one. And that's why Temple of Doom is, at least until Crystal Skull, that was the one that, that, that audiences didn't like. And so they went back and they reevaluated and said, well, what do audiences actually like? They like this particular character. They like these kinds of interactions. They like this kind of very specific Judeo-Christian focus on the, on the mythology. And then Last Crusade was this mega hit because they correctly identified what the audience loved. Yeah, so this is one of those things that becomes easy, albeit a little painful, if the book has already come out, because you can learn this by reading your Goodreads reviews. Um, I recommend reading your five-star and your four-star ones. The four-star ones are going to be the ones that tell you what to keep, because these are people that loved the book, but not quite enough. Right, they enough. had an they, issue with it or right. something. They had an issue. And those are the ones where you're like, okay, I can get rid of those issues. Uh don't read your three-star reviews or your two-star reviews because those are not your audience and those aren't going to help. Your one-star reviews, when you're in the right mood, are hilarious, <laughs> but again, not helpful. Yeah, I think one-stars are among the least helpful. Yeah, they're um, hilarious. How I can sometimes, what I will do is have an assistant go through read three and twos to see if there are near misses for, my, for a potential audience in yeah. there. Um, I stay away from reading them myself. Yeah. Uh, they'll report back to me if there are things I need to change. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, Mary, you are going to give us some homework. Yes. What I want you to do is I want you to go to a book that does not have a sequel. Um, this can be one of yours or a published one. And then I want you to write down five sequel possibilities. Uh, these can be a series or they can be individual standalones. Your yeah, choice. You can try out several of the different mm -hmm. ideas we talked about today. Yeah. All right. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. 
In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 